Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to today's episode of Wise Up Governance and Boards. Today we're joined by Nicholas Bernhardt, who is the CEO and co-founder of Australian tech company Inform365. Inform365 helps organisations from non-profits to global enterprises to governments to track, monitor, calculate and visualise critical ESG, environment, social governance data in a meaningful way that allows them to make better, more informed decisions. Nicholas is an ex-investment banker who held senior management positions at Standard Chartered Bank, Namura Securities and Amico Financial Services. Welcome, Nicholas. Welcome. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Ainsley. Thanks for joining us. So tell us a little bit about your journey to get to Inform 365. Oh, where do you want me to start? Do you want me to start in the dark ages when I was still an investment banker? Sounds good. Right. Okay. So uh, the typical sort of career, I studied in Zurich. I studied economics. And the traditional thing is after you studied economics in Zurich, what do you do? You can't go make clocks after that. So um, or watches, you go and work in a bank. So that was the standard operating procedure almost. So I was in banking for, I think, oh, probably about 15, 16 years. And um, whilst it was very entertaining, I also found it quite frustrating because there was a total disconnect with literally the world because you're basically selling and flogging air. And uh, the more hot air I would pedal, uh, the more it seemed like the more money I would make. So there was a total disconnect there for me. And after a while, I thought this is probably not a very fulfilling career decision. So I uh, went cold turkey in 2004, and then I started consulting to companies that were in the ESG, or environment, social, and governance space, and quickly figured out that that disconnect wasn't only just with banking, it was corporate world in general was struggling to find a way to link what's happening in the real world to what's happening within their business. And so I decided, well, uh, we've got issues like climate change, we've got human rights abuses, we've got all these issues that are not being tackled in a very scientific, not a very detailed manner. So I thought, well, we need to have data and IT underpinning any changes that happen in environment and social issues. Because we need to know what the issue is before we can start tackling the issue. And that's where the journey started. We initially called our company GreenBizCheck, which was the world's first online CSR. That's another word for ESG, corporate social responsibility. Uh, the first company that were the, the first online version of a certification program in that space. And it basically covered energy, water, waste, recycling, and all this sort of other CSR metrics. Company would go through an online checklist, get a report and an action plan, and once they hit a certain threshold, that's where Bureau Veritas came in and certified these clients. But 2011, uh, one of our clients reached out to us, or no, probably 2012, and asked us whether they could use our tech platform to start managing, monitoring, and tracking their suppliers. Because they were having, funnily enough, almost uh, as a sort of um, 
a prediction of the future, they were having issues in human rights in their supply chain. And they wanted to add transparency and visibility in their supply chains. And we thought about it for about a nanosecond and said, yep, this would work really well. Um, tech supply chains, you've got to get transparency into the nth degree of your supply chain. Let's build some capabilities and resources in that space. And we did that. Uh, and we literally pounded the pavement for about four or five years hoping to attract clients to listen. What happens in your supply chain is really critical to you as a business. And I'll be brutally blunt with myself. The traction we gained was negligible initially. <laughs> and I had, to, I had to look for a polite word for that. But anyway, after uh, in 2017, uh, the Human Rights, the Modern Slavery Act in uh, Australia got passed, and that got passed in November 2018. And that's really now elevated this topic um, to every, every senior manager and board member in any organization, basically. And we look at the Modern Slavery Act almost as a Trojan horse. Okay, you have to look after modern slavery now, and you have to make sure in your supply chain there's no modern slavery. Why don't we look at some other aspects that are related to the environment and social aspects? So that's the journey in about three and a half minutes, I think. <laughs> Probably felt a lot longer than that in, in real life. <laughs> oh, just a bit. <laughs> Especially those five, year, five years of pounding the pavement. So what were some of the challenges you faced during that time? Uh, I'll even... Oh, no, I shouldn't pin it to a demographic, should I? That, that, that would be quite discriminatory. It's completely up to you from your perspective. Uh, I think one of the biggest obstacles was preconceived ideas, and typically they, they were held by my demographic, so I can probably denigrate my own demographic, and that's middle-aged white men. Uh, they'd been doing business like that for the last 20, 30 years, and so change was hard to come by. And that goes for social aspects as well as environmental aspects. So that was probably one of the biggest challenges. But what, what I found, if I compare to our early days, the caliber of people working in the space now has, gone, has escalated to new levels. You've got some of the smartest people working in the environmental and social space these days, which is excellent because before that... If I was lucky 10, 15 years ago, I'd have a, a table of hippies around me. Now, I'm being slightly facetious here. But now you've got quality people that say, okay, we've got some issues and we need to challenge them. And it's driven by the, some of the most, some advanced corporations where they let those people really uh, drive the business on an environmental and social level. So how easy was it to transition from your um, supply chain management system to modern slavery? Oh, very easy, because we built that as a core component. So our, our system is very agile. So a lot of our clients track a whole range of metrics. Most of them obviously now track non-slavery because that's been legislated. But others might track things like conflict minerals or anything to do with timber-related products or health and safety, indigenous spend, local procurement. There's a whole range. What we did was we aligned our platform with ISO 20400, which some people might be aware of. But ISO 20400 is not a certification standard, but it gives you a framework as to what you could be tracking in your supply chain. So it covers things like governance, human rights, labor, environment, fair operating practices, community, and then there's one more, and I always forget that one, consumer issues. There we go. Those are the seven bubbles that you can sort of start looking at. 
Uh, most companies do a mix of those seven or highlight certain aspects of those seven. And what do you see as the poster child in this space that um, for organisations that have really got on board um, and they've kind of taken it to the next level in their organisation? Well, there's quite a few. Internationally, I would say Patagonia would be a poster child, uh, and this is their strategy. I mean, they've been living and breathing sustainability ever since they started their organization. It, it's part of their core being. Uh, a local company that I'm quite happy to give a plug to, Outland Denim. Outland Denim is, I think they're just up in uh, Helensville, if I'm not mistaken, local company in Queensland. Uh, basically, their philosophy, uh, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but they guarantee that they're paying above minimum wages and they set up their own factories and ensure that their staff are getting above and beyond minimum wages. And working really well, their, their sales are increasing constantly, so obviously there is a need for ethical products. Um, and probably maybe worthwhile mentioning uh, at an Australian level, uh, I, I would like to also re uh, suggest that the Property Council of Australia has taken leadership in this space as well. Uh, you might know that um, last year, October 2019, the Property Council launched an Australian-first shared platform for their members to combat modern slavery. So it was not the usual sort of Stockland, Mervac, Lendlease, tackle modern slavery in their little silos, but they do that collaboratively. Modern slavery is a non-compete space, let's face it. We all want to eradicate it. Well, not all. The perpetrators don't want to eradicate it, but normal, healthy, sane people want to eradicate modern slavery. And so it was good to see an industry organization take the lead and say, look, we're just going to do this because it will be much more efficient and the impact will be a lot greater. And have you found any others in that space where they could be doing it in silos? Um, other industries that have um, kind of banded together to tackle this problem on a united front? Absolutely. So it, it, it's been almost like the, um, a very good example of best practice to collaborate in this space. So we've since launched uh, two more uh, shared solutions. One is in the health, uh, health funds insurance business with NIB, HCF, Teachers Fund, and one more, and I've just forgotten which one that is. But also in the, um, in the um, utility sector, we're about to launch one with an organization called EPSA, and that includes a variety of members such as South Australia Power, Western Power, uh, we, we don't quite know the setup yet, so those are two that I think are definitely going to be part of that. But again, that collaborative approach. So if we're a reporting business that has to do modern slavery reporting, which is imminent, what are the steps involved? Well, the steps are, uh, I mean, the initial steps are you look at your policies, your procedures, your framework. Do you have that even embedded in your procurement? The second stage is starting to look at your risk within your supply chain to start identifying where are the risks in your supply chain. And then the third phase is where typically an, a company such as ours would come in to start engaging, monitoring, and tracking those suppliers and pushing that data into dashboards, which in turn then underpin your statement writing. But there's seven key components to a statement, um, and it's, it's uh, quite well documented in the Commonwealth guidance documents. And how have you found um, organisations going through that process? Has it been similar across the board or have you found some have 
you know, taken to it a lot easier than others or um, have you found it presented quite a few challenges for some organisations? Absolutely. You see the whole rainbow. As with most things, you have leaders, you have followers, and then you've got the laggards that sort of just kick and scream and say, look, we don't want to do this. But they then sometimes turn into just tick the box exercises, which is not the idea of the act, obviously. But I think the important thing is that the discussion starts at some point. Uh, And it's not me that came up with this analogy, but it's a very good one. If you look at health and safety, our health and safety used to be managed in, in the 90s. I mean, I was around in the 90s. I'll even go further back, even in the 80s. High-vis vests were optional. Work boots were almost optional. You go to a construction site now, and health and safety is everywhere. It's, it's literally in your face, and that's how you do business now. And I'm hoping that modern slavery or ethical sourcing, ethical procurement goes down a similar path. So organizations that are kind of gone through the process I think what um, you know even when we've seen the legislation first passed etc I think it's been quite overwhelming for businesses because um, you know even to determining revenue there was no clear definition Um, it's all a bit of a grey area once organisations actually do realise okay well now I'm a reporting entity um, where do I start and you know is it right down to where I'm getting my paper from for my photocopier or my stationery supplies or who's coming in to clean the building and so I think it's actually quite a challenge for organizations to even understand where to start in terms of who who my suppliers are. Absolutely and then throw COVID into the mix and then you've got the perfect cocktail of uh, governance nightmare literally. So how have you been, um, how do you guide organisations through that and um, what are the practical sort of steps that organisations can take? Yeah, well, typically what what has to happen with an organisation is the key stakeholders have to be involved in it. Otherwise, it does become a tick-the-box exercise. So it's the risk managers, it's the governance managers. Procurement obviously plays a big part. Um, what do we got? Governance, risk managers, procurement, uh, sustainability occasionally uh, enters the fray as well. To really include key stakeholders in the process is absolutely critical. Uh, and then go through the steps. The, the steps are pretty s- straightforward, actually. Do our policies include any statements on modern slavery? If they don't, well, that's a good starting point. Um, do I have an idea of what my consistency or what my supplier's setup is, what the database looks like. Do I even have a database of suppliers? And if you don't, that's another good starting point. Most organizations have a database, but experience would show we've seen some very good databases and some very bad ones. And the very bad ones, well, that's a starting point. You've got to start tidying up your database. You need to know where you're getting your goods and services from. But I guess in answer to your question, this is a very long-winded answer now. No, it's fine. But um, tier one is is your direct suppliers, and that's typically the starting point you're going to look at. So tier one is suppliers that you give money for goods and services to. That's your tier one suppliers. But those suppliers in turn have other suppliers. That would be your tier two, tier three, tier four. So typically most organizations are trying to get transparency in year one for their tier one suppliers. And down the track, it will be tier two, tier three, tier four to get that transparency like a Patagonia. And reporting outcomes, how have you found those? Have they, you know, have organisations been surprised at some of the results? 
Look, I, I think so. I think as it's new territory for most organizations, it is, oh, okay, well, we didn't know we had that much risk or we don't have any risk, but that has to be wrong too because we all have a risk. If you look close enough, you're going to find slavery in your supply chain. That, that's, that's already a given. So again, it's, we, we see the whole spectrum. Uh, on that note, there's, uh, I'm not sure if this is worthwhile mentioning, but early next month in December, there's a good SIPSA webinar, which uh, will be with the Home Affairs Business Engagement Unit as well. And they're going to talk about literally the good, bad and ugly of statements that they've seen so far and what maybe the highlights should be or where... Their expectations are for year two, year three, etc. So if listeners actually want to get um, involved in that, where would they find the information for um, that webinar? They could go to the CIPSA website, so that's C-I-P-S-A, and then just look up their, their webinars. I think from memory it's on the 5th or the 6th of December. Mm-hmm. But alternatively, happy to just reach out to us as well if they want to send us an uh, email to info at inform365.com. Uh, they'd be more than welcome to do that as well and we'd point them in the right direction. So with the data you're collecting on Tier 1, are companies collaborating and sharing that data? So they say to you, look, you know, XYZ's already done this. With their approval, are you sharing that information across the board? Uh, In an ideal world, that would be the answer, yes. We'll share everything. But um, the data we collect for some of our clients where we build standalone solutions, that data is proprietary to that entity and their suppliers, so there's no way of sharing that data. In in consortia, like the Property Council's uh, consortium or the Healthcare Fund's consortium, that's where the members of that consortium share the data under certain principles. Uh, I'll give you a very good example. The Property Council, when a supplier completes a self-assessment questionnaire, there's a question, who else would you like to share the data with? and they tick the boxes of who they'd like to share the data with. Now, if, if I'm, say, Stockland, and I'm part of that consortium, and I see a supplier is on that database, and I would like to see their data, but I haven't got access to it, I can just request access to that data. So we obviously have to uh, comply with privacy laws and concerns on that front, so we have to make sure that the data is not shared in a manner that wouldn't be conducive to that. And are you... Um doing any benchmarking reporting across that information? Brilliant question. That's something that is, uh, I think in 2021, that's going to be a huge exercise for us to see, okay, where are the gaps? Where where do we need to put more emphasis? Because year one, and, and this is probably a critical um, aspect of it, we're not trying to blacklist or, 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 or sort of point at suppliers and say, you're really bad. It's more a fact-finding mission, actually. Where do suppliers sit on this topic? Where are they? How far in the evolution are they? And depending on that, we'll have to provide more resources within our tool to allow these companies to catch up or at least become more knowledgeable in that space. So it's not a point-the-finger, let's exclude you from our supply chain exercise. That's totally not what the Act wants to achieve. Yeah, it's probably just you know raising the bar for everybody. Exactly. Health and safety analogy again, bringing everyone up to speed and, and turning it into business as usual. That, that's what we need to do. Climate change reporting. Right, well, climate change, the other big elephant in the room, not, not, not if you listen to certain federal governments, and, and they shall remain nameless, obviously. <laughs> um, 
Look, climate change is happening whether we like it or not. I mean, we're sitting here on the in the on the Gold Coast. It's a beautiful day out there, and life is great. It's, it's very warm in here, actually, but <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell anyone that. Uh, but look, climate change is an issue, and again, I think we need to drive the message via data. What is happening, and engage people. So, what we're finding at board level and at senior executive level. They've all got a whole collection of risks that boards and executive managers are faced with. And what we're finding now is a lot of them are interconnected. Climate change, health and safety, environment, labor, modern slavery, everything is connected in a certain way. And to be a senior manager these days is is a minefield because you have to keep an eye on all these risks and the only way you can do that if you start connecting these dots and having an overall picture of the risks of your business, but the risks of your business doing business as well. So it's, everything's becoming more and more interconnected in this space. And how are you finding um, the board level within organisations? Are they really open to change in this space? Are they becoming more progressive? Do you find that there's more of a top-down approach in organisations? I think the younger generation gets it. Let's let's not beat about the bush. They get it. Um, I think corporate Australia gets it as well now. I think... By and large, they all get it and they understand there's an issue and we need to challenge it and tackle it. Um, unfortunately, we're not getting any political guidance. Uh, and and that, that, that's been a bit of a hindrance. Uh, hopefully, in the US, we'll get uh, more leadership on that front as well come January. And uh, I think we're all quite excited to see that change come about. Well, I am anyway. And I think too, when you look at um, attracting other investment opportunities, when you know there are these sort of micro roundups and you know the raise and all those sorts of things, and um, you know the emergence of twenty, thirty-year-old uh, investors—not your traditional mum and dad investors anymore—they are trying to source more ethical investment opportunities, and you know ESG goes to the forefront of um, you know the investment mandates and looking at different ways to engage with investors going forward. Absolutely. Look, some dinosaurs are going to fall by the wayside. If you, if you don't embrace it now, I reckon in 10, 15 years' time, those companies won't be around anymore. ESG investing um, is becoming a huge topic, as you said, and that covers everything. That is environment and social. Uh, we've got um, portfolios. You've got portfolios in Australia that are solely investing in ethical um, uh, aspects, and they're outperforming the market. And in the, going, going forward in the future, I don't expect that to change. I think that will actually uh, escalate that disparity between ethical investments and non-ethical investments. Yeah. You've only got to look at like the Jeff Wilson wham type <laughs> philanthropic future funds and things like that, and they're totally. going gangbusters. Yeah. Absolutely. So what about data management and the, your business intelligence applications? Oh well, that that that's another arm of it. Again, it's it's trying to um, drive efficiency. Efficiency means less wastage, better use of resources. That that's what we're keen on. So we build a lot of um, very tailored um, 
platforms. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, we work with Treasury Wine Estate, TWE. I think they're the largest winery in Australia. And basically, we're tracking, uh, I think it's about 52 metrics across their global sites, which I think from memory is around 140 sites globally. And so we're tracking all these different metrics and then we can sort of start analyzing and benchmarking the data and seeing, okay, we've got peaks and troughs. Why are those peaks and troughs ha happening? And underpin that with information. So, okay, we used more water last month, but it was a very atypical hot month. So that's why we use more water. But what we're finding, we're seeing patterns now evolve. And we're also seeing different sites managing different metrics differently and having different outcomes. So what we've built on top of that, just tracking the data site, is a best practice site where we start sharing that best practice knowledge across the entire group. And that's having huge efficiency gains. And we had another winery just... Uh, commission us to build uh, a very similar system. Uh, we also, funnily enough, we report for the 40 top law firms in Australia as well on a whole range of things like uh, gender equality, greenhouse gases, uh, pro bono, psychological well-being, the whole gamut uh, under four pillars, um, economical, no, not economical, governance, uh, environment, community, oh, there's one more, it's gone. Probably people or something like that. You've got it. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't forget people, should we? No, they're, no. they're the backbone of every business. <laughs> so, Nicholas, with startups, what are some of the sort of key Learnings? challenges? <laughs> challenges. Yeah, key challenges for startups. Um, I mean, a lot of it's going to sound very cliché. Don't give up and keep plugging away. But if you've got a bad idea that people don't want, then you can not give up until the cows come home and it's still not going to develop a business that is going to be commercially viable. So it, it takes a reasonably good idea and then persistence. And dare I say, you, you need some liquidity as well. You need some funds. Otherwise, a startup phase is very lean on revenue. So got to have a bit of funds behind you as well. And what are the sorts of things that startups could be doing to um, kind of tackle some of these issues earlier on in their life cycle around, um, you know, procurement, system setup, all of that sort of stuff that's sort of tailored to the size and needs of that business at their sort of, you know, infancy? Well, I think that's where Three Wise Isles comes into the play, quite frankly. You're, you're the kind of people that can guide businesses across these, um, these areas. I mean, setting up a business is quite daunting. I mean, you've got the regulatory frameworks, you've got all these other risks, uh, at least of all, can I, make a, can I make a living out of this business? So I think if you've got an advisor that helps you along the steps and your evolution, such as yourselves, that probably will help every business as well. And what solutions does Inform 365 have for startups? What solutions? Um, typically at this stage, we are more geared towards the larger end of town because, um, I mean, you have to have $100 million turnover to report for the Modern Slavery yeah. Act. So... A startup. I mean, if if they, if if, I, if a startup has a hundred million dollars turnover, <laughs> good on them. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it, look, it's um, we're geared for the bigger end of town uh, at this point in time, but it, it is it's affordable. I mean, we're software as a service. We're monthly charges. We're trying to basically build applications that are very easy to 
be adapted to the requirements and be agile. That, that's probably our biggest strong suit. We're very agile. Uh, we, we can track and monitor any kind of metric. And so the, the pricing level is, is coming down as well. Economies of scale are kicking in. So in terms of organisations go through the process, they get the data, they've done it for a little bit of time now and they can start seeing the, these patterns that you talk about. Where to from here? How can they then start you know, reducing that or starting to aim towards um, a best practice type poster child in this space? Uh, absolutely. Well, the starting point is is to get that engagement with your suppliers, right? So you're starting with your tier one suppliers, obviously, and you're going to find challenges within your tier one suppliers. You're going to see issues. You're going to see, okay, there's some issues there. You need to track how are these suppliers complying with your requirements going forward. So you need to say, okay, supplier A, you've got a little bit of a gap here you need to you need to address these issues and that's where you've got to track them implementing it you can't just say look you go out and implement that what we do in our in our application is provide those suppliers with useful resources so hyperlinks to information that will help them and point them in the direction of the solution to their problem so that stage one is is helping us your, your tier one suppliers become a better corporate citizen and making sure that they don't have modern slavery but it's also around that engaging with them to even start the conversation. Because let's be brutally honest, if you asked 100 people out on the street where the modern slavery was still an issue, I, I, I might even have to do that one day just to sort of underpin this with a number. But I would imagine 80% would say, no, it's not an issue anymore. Uh, and maybe for, for listeners here, I, I don't know if people are aware, but the number out there currently is... The popular number or the most accepted number is 40 million people are living in a slave-like situation at this point in time. I actually put my hand up and I, I have severe reservations about that number. I think it could be considerably, significantly higher. Mm. And I'll give you an example of that in the UK uh, about oh, probably six, seven months ago. I don't know if you read about the Boohoo scandal. So Boohoo reasonably cheap um, single-use fashion, I'll call it, um, had a factory in the UK, in the middle of the UK, in Leicester. And based on that factory and the findings there, the UK increased its guesstimate of slaves in the UK from 10,000 to 100,000. So I'd, I'm just going to repeat that. That's from mm. 10,000 to 100,000. That's not a 5% correction. That's not a 10%. Ten times. That's a tenfold correction. Mm. So if, I sort of, if I'm just going to be a bit cynical here and I apply the same sort of benchmark to that 40 million number, suddenly we could be talking somewhere in the region of 400 million people mm. in slave-like conditions. So it's a huge number. Yeah. And maybe to put things even more in perspective, one in four is a child. Mm. So I have, a, I have an eight-year-old, just turned eight. You have children too, I'd imagine. One in four is a child, so you've got 10 million child slaves out there. 70% odd are women. So again, your demographic is uh, targeted for that. And do you think that will increase as, over the years as you go down tiers? No, I think the more transparency we have, then that number will increase. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty certain. I'm in nothing certain in life apart from certain things, but we won't go down that path. Um, 
I would imagine the more transparency we have, the higher the number will be eventually. And do you use any of this information or um, can this be used for, uh, you know, like surprise audits and things like that? So you know how um, ISO certification for supply chain in large manufacturers and retailers, etc., and they do surprise audits in their supply chain in certain countries. Can this information be used for that as well or can uh, your software be used to capture that information for third-party auditing? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's one of the key. We want to push as much data into our system as possible to really give that full visibility. And so audits are key. And you mentioned unannounced audits, announced audits. Uh, historically speaking, announced audits don't work. If you know an audit is coming in tomorrow at 6 o'clock in the morning, you're not going to line up your child labor in one corner, your slaves in the other corner, and your regular work workers in the other two corners. You're not going to do that. Modern slavery is a criminal activity. So people are not going to say, oh, yeah, I've got the auditors coming in tomorrow. Tomorrow, Come on, kids, come, come, come to work tomorrow. Make sure you're here. That's not going to happen. So the traditional way of dealing with it doesn't work. So we've got to find clever ways to beat, unfortunately, clever people as well because uh, they're making a lot of money out of slave labor. So unannounced audits, working with NGOs on the ground, um, whistleblower hotlines, anonymous ones. Uh, again, that has to be something that uh, a staff member is certain that that information doesn't get into the wrong hands because what if you blow the whistle on something and that information goes to the CEO of the company that's hired you? I don't rate your chances of keeping that job. So th there's a lot of challenges that we need to address and we're very much in the infancy and we're looking at all sorts of different ways of plugging the relevant information into the platform. Now's your chance for the sales pitch, Nicholas. Your UVP, what makes your approach to modern slavery reporting different to others? And why should somebody choose Inform 365 over, you know, there's ones out there that just do a number and go, okay, well, you've got X amount of dollar spend on suppliers or X number of suppliers in your list we envisage that you've got a percentage of, um, you know, modern slaves in your supply chain. How's your approach different? Well, I guess there's a few aspects to that. I mean, our entire company is built around ESG. We want to track, monitor ESG data, and we want to turn the world into a better place. That That's our be-all and end-all. We're not, we're not in it to be the next $60 billion company. If we, if we do become the next $60 billion company, I can guarantee right here online and um, in this space that most of that money will go straight back into ESG. So if we do make that money, that'd be great, but uh, we're in it for the right reasons. Uh, the, the company that we've built is very much around tech that has to be agile because things evolve so quickly in this era that we need to be agile. And I think that's one of the advantages of Inform 365. We are very agile to really adapt to what the requirements are, but also listen to the client and make sure that we deliver what they actually want and provide them data to make those better, more informed decisions. And if somebody wants to find you, where do they find you? They find us at uh, Inform 365 or informed365.com. So that's www.informed365.com. Fantastic. So in terms of, um, obviously, um, law firms can be quite competitive with each other and you mentioned before that you've got sort of 40 that have collaborated together. Was that something that has been brought about by 
your software or is it something that they've kind of got together on their own um, accord? No, this was run. This is run by an organisation called the Australian Legal Sector Alliance, and uh, run by Richard Jennings out of Melbourne. And uh, is it Kevin? No, is is it Kevin? It doesn't matter. Richard is the main man there. He's been um, he's been running Australian Legal Sector Alliance for quite a few years, Uh, and they'd been reporting on on CSR. Uh, for quite a few years before we entered the fray, but we automated a lot of that processes. And and uh, anyone can uh, view the public report. Uh, the 2019 is publicly available. You can literally compare law firms against each other on paper consumption, on energy consumption, business travel, which obviously 2020, there'll be a huge dip in that. <laughs> uh, maybe just a quick question to you guys. Um, give, give me a... Um, your best guess, how many kilos of paper does a law firm on average use per staff member per annum? Paper, per kilogram. Per staff member. Yeah. I how would many, say 200 kilos. That one, you've, you've just hit the sort of top offender. 200 kilos is the worst. Um, the sort of average is around 90 kilos at this point in time. It's a lot of trees. It is a lot of trees. Especially in a digital age where you would imagine a lot of these places are going paperless and even hopefully COVID has um, kind of been a catalyst for uh, those that have been the laggers to actually adopt digital change. You'd hope so. Again, I think old ideas might sort of perish with... Um, yeah, evolution. Just, yeah, evolution. Let's leave it. At, I think that's the best way of putting it. So some people still print out emails, uh, and I go, okay, that's an interesting concept. So it, sometimes you can't change habits. All right. Well, before we wrap up today, is there any sort of top things that you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, look, I think there's a, there's there's a myriad of things, but I guess one of the biggest things would be to when you buy anything, try and buy it with ethical considerations in mind as well. Think about the ramifications of buying a $1 T-shirt. Someone is being exploited for that $1 T-shirt. It it may may feel a need for you now, but think about the ramifications. Be a bit more um, thoughtful around the environment and around your fellow human beings and also every animal and every other species. Very nice lasting words. Thank you, Nicholas. And... um Thanks for joining us today, Nicholas. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.